0: Hi, everyone. I'm Amna, the host of Uncomfortable. This is the place where we try to have honest and open conversations about some of the issues that seem to be dividing America right now. With us today, from Austin, Texas, is award-winning filmmaker Adam Hutnick, who's the man behind the new film What Carter Lost, which is being released as part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. Adam, thanks so much for being with me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this is ostensibly a sports story, right? It's, it's a feature-length doc. It tells the story of the Dallas Carter Cowboys, a high school football team that made an incredible historic run in 1988 to bring Dallas its first state championship since 1950, right? That's right. But there's a lot more in there. It's a lot more than a sports story, and I want to dig into all of that in just a second. But what we like to do here is talk a little bit about what brought you where you are today, how you came to believe the things that you do today. So tell me about you.
1: Well, I guess I had a somewhat unconventional path to being a independent filmmaker. I uh, went to uh, high school in Syracuse and then uh, went to college at Harvard and went abroad after that to the Middle East. I taught in an American school and then went back to Harvard for law school and spent some time in South Africa working in the parliament there a few years after the end of apartheid and then went back again in a sort of journalistic role. And uh, then, you know, after law school was at msnbc for a bit and then mtv news and documentaries and slowly but surely was kind of working my way towards this version of storytelling and it really was just an evolution uh toward you know understanding the the outlet for my creativity I guess and and the best way to try to do something that felt like it matters so that's how I've ended up here
0: now the story uh, in what Carter lost focuses a lot on the racial tensions in this one community there's a big divide between the white community and the black community did you grow up in a similar situation or was this like a new paradigm for you
1: no I'm, I I grew up in a very tranquil suburb of Syracuse New York and uh, I, I don't think I ever had to contend with any of those kinds of serious issues as a kid. But I think I was probably always somewhat sensitive to the fact that not everybody had it as easy as I did.
0: Why do you think that was? Was it something you were just aware of or something your folks talked about?
1: Yeah, you know what? I don't know. Um, I think I always tried to read a lot and stay connected to what was going on in the world. And as soon as I was old enough that I could travel, I did. Um, And I... I don't know if I can put my finger on why I pay attention to the things I pay attention to or care about the things that I do or certainly why I did as a kid. But um, I think I always hoped that one way or another, I would get to do something that mattered. And again, I felt like um, I was given a lot and my goal was to try to make something better for others out of all the good things that I'd been given.
0: So how did you find this story, the story of this 1988 team? And what was it about this that said to you, I, I have to do this. I have to be able to tell this story to a larger audience.
1: Well, a friend sent me a couple of articles. Uh, he actually was in L.A. And um, he was working at the time for the the production company that I ended up doing the film with. And as soon as I read a little bit about this story and understood how much wasn't told in the movie Friday Night Lights with which which deals with the Carter story, but it's really about uh Permian, the team that Carter ended up beating in the semifinals of that season. But uh Permian on the on the uh coattails of Friday Night Lights ends up becoming, you know, this big legend of Texas football. And it already was. It was the the team was a, a dynasty, but I don't think anybody knew all of the layers of the Carter story nearly as well. And and to me, this is one of the greatest, not just football, not just sports stories I've ever heard. This is one of the most compelling stories just on its face that I've ever heard. And and once you start digging into uh, the layers of what happened you know, politically, culturally, um, in terms of the, the football politics, in terms of community identity, in terms of Race, uh, in terms of pop culture, you know, it it this story ties to everything. So, to me, it was an, an incredible opportunity, as well as you know, an incredible opportunity to tell a powerful story and to really look into something interesting, but also to give a community a chance to have its voice heard in a way that it, I think, a lot of people from Carter and from Oak Cliff felt like they never had.
0: Yeah, when I said there's a lot there, I wasn't kidding. I mean, there are so, every time you turn a corner in your storytelling in this, there's another larger, deeper political, social issue that's being contended with. And, you know, it's about football and triumph and crime and tragedy and and really a lot of the things that still sort of plague us today as a country. But this, as I mentioned, was 30 years ago, right? So how hard was it to get people to talk about it now? Had everyone kind of moved on, or, or were they were they ready and willing to talk about it again?
1: You know, in Oak Cliff and in Dallas, and I think probably across Texas, nobody has ever forgotten this story. Um, this is one of the great Texas legends. I don't know how well it's known outside of Texas, but, you know, in the few years that I've been working on this project, whenever I tell anybody pretty much that I'm working on the Carter story, and you know everybody remembers. Oh yeah, okay, Carter's the team that beat Permian that year, and everybody knows Friday Night Lights. I think that's probably true. You know, it's it's pretty well known around the country and and beyond. Um, so there wasn't an issue with anybody forgetting, but I think particularly for the people in the Carter community, there was definitely a reluctance to get involved because they felt like um, there have been so many. Ways that this story has been talked about but never really representing their perspective. I think a lot of people felt like they'd been burned before and, and I'm an outsider. I'm not from Carter. I'm not from Dallas. And so I really had to take my time and that's how I wanted to do it in the first place I think. Um, my goal was to have the people who felt like they hadn't been heard um, get a chance to be heard. and And so my goal was to really as much as anything – let them have their platform to tell their side of the story, certainly to explore you know all of the perspectives or as many as I could in in one feature film, but really to look at it from the perspective of people who felt like nobody ever really tried to understand what went on at our end.
0: You know, it's such an interesting point you raise, that that mistrust, even after all these years, because, well, for anybody who's not familiar with it, and we're talking about Friday Night Lights over and over again, but it was a, a book and a movie and a, and a TV series, and the Carter team, this high school football team, and high school football in Texas is like religion, right? I mean, I, in your movie, it was I was sort of reminded that, yeah, these guys play in stadiums, like thousands of fans show up. It is a big, big deal. But... You know, for for them, their their story as it's been told were these were the bad guys, right? Carter was it was the big, black, bad team. They cheated, they played dirty, and it's what the Odessa Permian team had to contend with in Friday Night Lights, right? So how did they feel about the way that the rest of the world saw them before when you came to them? I,
1: I think that's right. And the only uh slight qualification I would add to that is I think in in Buzz Bissinger's book in the nonfiction version that he wrote in 1988 of friday night lights he actually does deal with the carter story i think pretty pretty fairly and accurately it's what happens 15 years or so later when the movie friday night lights comes out and i think at that point there is an entirely different legacy that is cemented um that that does treat carter in i think a very unfair and inaccurate and one-dimensional and and racially stereotypical way.
0: So let's talk about that for a second, because when, look, there's kind of two parts to this story. And I stop me if I'm getting close to any spoilers here because I really want people to watch the whole thing. Um, but but it is out there, the details of all these stories. There's sort of two parts to it, right? There is the the playoffs. There is this 1988... Championship playoff season. And the difficulty the team faced just throughout that at the very beginning of that obstacle is when one of the kids, one of the players grades are challenged, right? Um, there's an anonymous tip and someone says he shouldn't even be playing. And basically the, the whole system says, okay, this team is now disqualified. This team that was basically favored to win, right? A team assembled like no other in high school football history. And throughout all that storytelling, as you go through the playoff season, There's sort of something that's said but not said, right, that this was about a black school in a white school system. Is that fair?
1: I think it is fair. I think there are all kinds of power structures in addition to sort of the official and institutional ones. I think there was a – you know, you talk about the significance of, of football in Texas and the number of people who go to the games and identify personally with the identity of their teams. And I, I think it's hard to understand how core that that sport is and those teams are to the identity of a town without having seen it. And I think in the eighties it was, you know, as, as powerful as ever. So um bigger things than who wins and loses football games were at stake. I mean, the reputations of towns, the economies of towns, the desirability of towns as places to live are really all connected psychically to to these teams. So you have um, much bigger issues being connected to what's going on on the field. And so when there are these um, legal or educational policy issues that come up that also touch on um, who is or isn't going to be allowed to play, yeah, it takes on much bigger significance. And there are um, historical powers, both in terms of football power and I would say in terms of political and, and economic power and cultural power. Um, and when, when disputes come up among the schools that are used to being in these championship games I think they're they were traditionally handled one way and when it involved Carter I think you know, most people would say it was handled pretty differently.
0: Well, what did you find? Because you've been digging into this now, you've basically talked to every single person who was involved from every single side. I mean, I know you say most people would think that it was handled differently, but at the core of this, because this is the criticism that often comes up, right? Is maybe race wasn't an issue. Maybe we are imposing race as an issue in something that wasn't. Maybe this was just about a kid whose grades weren't there, and he shouldn't have been playing in the first place.
1: Well, I think, and there is so much complexity to the grade story and to the educational policy story that is really dense and kind of hard to understand. So where I came out at the end of it was um, there were probably plenty of legitimate reasons to be curious about what was going on at Carter. I think there were probably reasons to be curious about what was going on at any school that had a competitive football team at that level in that era and um, as one of the journalists who's in the – film says, you know, 20, 30 years of pretty much every year there being, you know, whispers or questions about whatever team won. And yet in in that whole time span, Carter is the only team that gets the forfeit. Um, I think there, you know, there were no other examples of uh, rival schools who had been beaten in the playoffs filing lawsuits um, uh, in this way, Um, though I think there were frequently – Legal challenges. There was not um, an assault on an entire system the way there was with Carter. There was not a media bandwagon that largely, you know, you had cartoons questioning whether, you know, anybody from Carter could read. Um, You had, you know, op eds and editorials really not investigating, but sort of assuming things about Carter that I think you wouldn't have seen assumed, certainly not in print or on on TV or on radio about other schools in the same way. Uh, Can that be proven to be because of race? Probably not, but I think uh, it is – I can't come up with another good explanation. And and what's certain is that Carter was never given the benefit of the doubt in a way that that other schools often were. And that ultimately, once a judge looked at these grading issues, that judge's conclusion was – What we need to be looking at is is there any evidence that the school was doing anything fraudulent? Were they doing anything to try to um, improperly keep football players on the field? Were any of these allegations justified by any evidence? And The answer was no, that what the judge concluded, Carter and its administration acted reasonably. But I don't think at the time any of the rival schools or most of the media covering this story was – looking that far into the evidence or into the details. So what motivated them to handle it the way they did? You know, I I think it's a, uh, a, a pretty fair assumption to say race was a big part of that.
0: One of the things that's so striking in your storytelling is because, as I mentioned, you do talk to so many different people uh, who have such vivid recollections all these years later. But the parents of these players, because at the heart of all this is, is is the kids, right? The young men, high school students, incredible athletes have these really bright futures ahead of them. And for them, it's probably just mostly about wanting to be able to play the sport that they love. But then you have these parents who carry with them all this weight of the generation before, right? Who, as one of the parents mentioned, a lot of them went to segregated schools. You know, they live in a a comfortable middle class uh, neighborhood. They are giving their kids the best education. They see these futures they've laid ahead for their kids. And when they fight... For their kids to be able to compete and be able to play, it seems to be about something else entirely. Do, do you think that's right?
1: A hundred percent. I think to me, the parents are really at the heart of the story for all of the reasons you just mentioned. I think uh, if the parents don't say, you know what, we're not going to be labeled this way. We're not going to be told we're not going to have this opportunity. This was really – in Texas, for sure, the first generation of African American parents who'd made it out of segregated schools went to college. For the most part, these were, you know, stable, well to do, two parent families, a lot of professionals. These were parents who were able to give cars to their high school aged kids. This was uh, the American dream in a lot of ways. And yet, in some ways with this controversy, with this anonymous tip that comes out on the eve of the playoffs and suddenly it appears that the system is mobilizing to prevent them from going forward, you're absolutely right that for them this was about a lot more than football. And so I think if it if not for the parents that mobilizing and saying we're going to raise money to fight this legal challenge, we are going to stick with this, we are going to show up for hearings in Austin and wherever we have to go um, – I think that team probably doesn't stay in the playoffs and and nobody ever really pushes back against the allegations that are made and that's where that story ends. But instead, the parents do rise up and do uh, come together as a group and say, we are going to resist. And, and that's where, you know, when the story takes the tragic twist that it takes after the playoffs, it's really so, you know, again, tragic that. Everything that they've been fighting to say about who they are as people and about as a community is, in some ways, undercut.
0: Let me ask you about the generational thing. Because another thing that struck me was that as you, the parents on, on really on both sides of this, right, are are so dug in, and they're the ones leading the legal fight and showing up for the hearings. To what degree do you think the kids were sort of used in in a lot of this on on both sides? You have parents uh, in black families who, as you mentioned do not want their children to have to face the same kind of injustices and inequality that they did on the other hand you have white parents who don't want to send a message to their kids that they may lose in a system where the other team is ineligible you know just because of whatever reason that team gets to move forward that they don't want their kids to feel like they didn't get a fair shake either
1: i think that's absolutely right i think again um The reason to me that this is much bigger than a football story is because football is just the you know that's just the the proxy conflict right? Which team was going to get to stay in was absolutely symbolic of who had power, who was right, who you know for for all these much bigger questions. And and I agree with you completely that the the kids playing on these football teams and the kids who are in these schools who had so much invested in seeing their team go forward um, yeah they were absolutely um, in some ways being used as as proxies in, in in a battle over much larger issues.
0: you've got this sort of one there's sort of two wonderful stories embedded into this one film and you stop me if you think I'm getting too close to any spoilers here I just feel like because it's out there and the facts are out there we we can talk about this but they win they go on they make history there is this incredible high these young men are soaring high and uh, they have bright futures ahead of them and then a few of them make some horrible horrible decisions that end up leading many of them into prison and affecting the entire team Right. Um, when you were talking to them about that time, when their lives took such a dramatic turn, what was that like for them? Had, did, were most of them still sort of living in the details or had they moved past it?
1: You're saying w- when, I, when I spoke to them now, where were they? Yeah.
0: To the players in particular, how, how, do they, how do they talk about that time in their lives when they seemingly had everything ahead of them and, and, in, and just experienced such a dramatic drop?
1: yeah I mean I think um so I will say two things first of all uh to me, the story wasn't just about the six guys on this team who who made mistakes and and did these crimes, but the fifty something other guys who didn't and um what this meant for for their reputation and their life going forward and i so but but I think there are regrets across the board um the of of the six who you know, got involved in the crime spree. Um, I think they are all regretful. I think they have processed this in different ways. Each of them has kind of had a, a different relationship with it and speaks about it differently. They're they are varying comfort levels with, um, you know, kind of really digging into what it felt like. I think uh, for some of them who you know, are, can look at concrete examples of, you know, Jesse Armstead, who was the number one guy on this team, which had, you know, a, a record number of of uh, scholarships and a huge number of guys who went on to play some some level of professional football beyond college. They have all these examples to look at of what might have been. And by the way, playing professional football wasn't the only possible positive outcome from going to a great school and having a scholarship and and doing well there, there you know any number of positive paths were laid out and so you look at all these teammates who didn't make these mistakes and you see where they are and you have to every day wake up comparing yourself and I think that is a an incredibly difficult thing and some of them are more vocal about it and some less. but I think you know one of the telling things about this story and this town and the the character of these guys is, none of them has ever had any criminal or legal issues afterwards um so you know when they say this isn't who I was their track record since bears that out and uh but what you know what it has meant to them to you know one of the guys carlos allen is is you know one one of my favorite guys to talk to from this group and you can really tell when you talk to him just that every day this is something that is still very much uh i think near near the front of his consciousness and um for him he lost his parents shortly after he got out of jail and for him this was more than just the opportunity he lost but but i think you know what he told me is my parents died not knowing that that wasn't who i was and uh so it's you know i think there are incredible levels of of color and depth to this tragedy, but as well of of triumph that, you know, everybody's turned out okay.
0: But Adam, let me ask you this, because, you know, a lot of people will look at that part of the story. And I know the two stories are connected in your film, right? The incredible triumph that they achieved playing football, and then the incredible downfall they had as, as, uh, as criminals, as you know, because they did commit these crimes, they did Commit armed robbery. They put other people's lives at risk. They they devastated other people um, by making them the victims of those crimes. Is there? Do you think that you were too sympathetic in your in that part of the storytelling? Because some people will look at it and say, you know what? They for whatever came before, they did do these things. They did deserve to be punished in some way.
1: Yeah, and by the way, that's my perspective too. And I think that's their perspective. I think you know one of the things I didn't get into in great detail in in the film is that you know the sentencing and and they will ha- they have varying opinions about uh, the the correctness of the sentences that they got. That to me was something where I certainly didn't see it as an open and shut case. And uh, so I agree. These were incredibly serious crimes. These were incredibly dangerous situations to be creating and I don't know I don't think it was necessarily too sympathetic um you hear from the victims of the crimes uh some of the victims um you hear the players own parents in some cases saying you know you do a crime you do the consequences uh so I think uh even they themselves would not argue that what they did wasn't serious and I I definitely would not say that uh, I think to me, the more interesting questions are around how did they end up in a place where they could do this in the first place? How did they not understand how much they had to lose and what it was they were doing when they made these decisions? And 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 how is this relevant for people who aren't all-star football players? How is this relevant for other kids or teachers or parents or coaches or – administrators or or the media. I mean, it touches on a lot. But um,
0: Well, why do you think they didn't? What do you think was missing there? Was this just kids being kids? Because we all know kids make mistakes all the time, but most don't do it with guns in their hands.
1: Yeah, I don't think there is a simple answer. I think there were a range of factors, one very significant one being the pedestal that these guys had been put on and the a season that they had just come out of where in experience after experience, they came to see things in such a way that they thought it didn't matter what happened. Somebody was going to get them out of any tight spot that they got into, that they were always going to come out ahead, that they were invincible and living these charmed lives. And 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 in some sense, I, I feel like they thought they were living in a movie where none of it was really real and none of the regular rules applied to them. Um and I think there are, you know, you can point the finger at uh, a lot of factors. I don't think there was any single one, but um, did the media play a role? For sure. Did did the school play a role? For sure. Did the parents play a role? For sure. Did the community that, you know, was constantly telling them, so long as you're winning, you can do no wrong, you know, in in, in so many ways, did that play a role? Absolutely. And yet, there are plenty of other examples of you know, athletes or or stars in other regards who have those same set of factors and they don't end up doing armed robberies. So I don't think you can, you know, you also have to put personal decision making and personal character and maturity into that stew and uh, I, I don't know that there's any way of ever predicting who will or won't make mistakes like this but I think it's important to know these stories and whether you're, whether you're a parent or a coach or a, a kid – understanding how easily it can go wrong when you think it never will.
0: You know, you talk to so many people, um, Who witnessed it, who lived through it, who were touched by it in some way 30 years ago. And I'm curious, it sounds like now when you go back and you talk to the kids from Carter, the families from Carter, the folks who were supporting them then, um, especially during the turmoil over the grades and eligibility during the playoff season, they think that race was a factor, right? They think that it was largely about a a white-controlled system not wanting a, a black school to succeed, In the way that it was at the time, I'm curious if you talked to any white members of the community who were either involved or viewed it or witnessed it back then who think that now that, yeah, race was a factor.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the journalists who were covering the story at the time or at least were familiar with it, uh, you know, there were there were not a ton of people who were outspoken at the time saying there is a double standard here. Carter is being treated unfairly, whether they said overtly it was because of race or not. I think now looking back, I mean, look, if you look at the Friday Night Lights, the movie came out in 2004 and you couldn't have much more sort of negative racial symbolism than you had in that movie. That was only 13 years ago. So forget about 30 years ago. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I, I but it's still complicated. I think there are still people... Uh, who you would talk to from that area who would say no carter was you know what was going on academically was shady and and it wasn't about race um there are a lot of people who will never be convinced but there are plenty of people now who look at it on its face and say look um at a minimum. Uh, you know, Carter didn't get the benefit of the doubt, didn't get for this thing to be handled behind closed doors as opposed to through the filing of lawsuits and through going to the media and turning this thing into what became a huge and and controversial story.
0: 1988 feels like so long ago. Just looking at the footage too, right? It feels like so long ago. But in the span of time, it's not. It's really not that long, not that long ago. Um, And I'm curious how kids today? Um, because you talk to the Carter kids today, right? And the families today as well. How did they process what happened back then? Well,
1: I think for a lot of people from the Carter neighborhood, a lot of them still today that, you know, they would say there's a lot that's still the same. Um, that really the way people. Sure. I, I don't think you have to look too far in terms of current events to see that the way people perceive authority the way people perceive the coverage of stories um can be very influenced by race or by the background that you come from um and that who gets the benefit of the doubt and who doesn't i mean if you you know look at um a lot of the issues with race and community policing and who tends to get believed and who doesn't um you know there are a lot of things people have been saying here's how we get treated here's how the system treats us for a long time, and it's uh, you know, if that is shifting now, it may be only because there are cameras involved, and so it's harder to say now nah, this isn't happening the way you're saying it's happening. So, I think a lot of those issues are still still very much with us.
0: Well, we're talking today on uh, it's August eighteenth. I should mention, and so we're just uh, a week out from the events in Charlottesville, from the the march by white supremacists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis that um, ended up in a deadly clash with some of their counter-protesters last weekend. And I'm curious how you, having delved so deeply into the story of Carter and a lot of the issues that were underlying what happened there, how you processed last weekend's events and the fallout since
1: Uh... I- <laughs> I'm I'm still I guess I'm still processing I think like so many other people um I guess my overwhelming you know reaction emotionally has just been sadness um I'd love to say shock I guess I'm not necessarily shocked though I think the last year has shown us a lot about how far we haven't come and how many people uh, still hold views that I consider abhorrent and counterfactual and ridiculous, and things that we thought were, you know, kind of gone after the 1950s or the 1960s. But I guess that's the same point I was making in answer to your last question, which is if you ask people from Carter, you know, how do they feel about it now? And in some ways, uh, a, a lot hasn't changed. And yet there are, there are certainly incredible positives to be seen as well. I think the number of people who Stand up now of, of all races and say this is not I'm, – I'm not going to let the story be told this way. I'm not going to sit by. I'm going to be part of the story. I'm, in whatever way I can, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to understand that even though th- it may not be my community, I may not be somebody who is being directly assaulted by the rhetoric of the people who want to remake the world in their uh, twisted image. I'm not going to be part of that, and in fact, I'm going to stand up against it. So that's you know, while there's a lot to be sad about, I think it's important to remember. You know, in I've got a a good friend who uh, is an alum of Texas A and M, and where they've had some of these speakers show up, and you know, the story that often doesn't get told is how large the numbers are of people who show up to say, "Not in my backyard, not on my watch. You're not speaking for me." The numbers of those people are often much larger than the ones who are spewing hate, and so that's the upside. And you know, my hope is that in some way this story is one that helps inspire a few more people to say, "Oh, you know what? That's not how I remembered the story." But man, there was a lot that I was missing, and and maybe that's still happening. You know, maybe maybe that's how I should think about stories that I'm hearing now. What 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 perspective isn't being represented, and what can I do to make sure? I'm trying to find that one, too.
0: You know, so often when we end up talking on like a national level about race and and racism as it exists today in America, we talk about it because it has overtly presented itself, right, like it did in Charlottesville. And when I think about that and contrast that with how the story was told with Carter, it's sort of a reminder in some ways that racism isn't always just about people marching in the streets and telling you to your face what they think about you that it's institutional that there are systems in place that will present obstacles for communities that it won't present for others or as you said give some people the benefit of the doubt and not to others so I'm curious now we're 30 years out from the event um perhaps not as far as we would like to be as a country when it comes to this, but with the benefit of time and distance when it comes to Carter and with the perspective that you have, because you went back and dug into all sides of it. You talked to folks from the school board, you talked to the arresting officer in some of these cases, you talked to the victims of the crimes, to the players, their families. When you look back at it now, was it about race?
1: I think it was about race. And I think it was also about football. Uh, So I think that um, that there were a lot of schools and a lot of communities that would do what they could to keep their team in, um, regardless of who the challenger was. But um, I think, you know, as uh, several of the journalists who I talked to, who were covering this at the time, said, "Look, if it was a different school." these conversations about was 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 there an eligibility issue, those things would have been dealt with behind closed doors between people who had existing relationships and had dealt with these things before. And one way or another, it would have gotten sorted out with without becoming a major legal controversy and without becoming a media controversy. And so it was partially race. Race was one of the reasons probably why the people from these schools didn't know each other. They didn't Frequent the same places. They didn't necessarily live in the same neighborhoods, and and Carter was not one of these traditional powers that was always in contention, and where the the staffs and the administrators knew each other and were used to dealing with each other. So, I you know I don't know that it was as simple as we're you know there there's a an institutional decision at the top. We're well, we got to keep the black school out, but there were a whole lot of like you said, institutional and more insidious factors that I think prevented Carter from getting dealt with in the same way that many other schools would have been.
0: Well, it is an incredibly told story. I mean, it has all the highs that you would hope for and just in in all the emotion um, as if it just happened yesterday. So congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. And um, thanks for making the time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So that is Adam Hootnick. He is the director of What Carter Lost. It's an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. It debuts August 24th on ESPN at 8.30 Central, 9.30 Eastern. Thanks again, Adam. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan, that's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.